listening to AR Zone, podcasts featuring interviews and commentary from Animal Rights Zone, the online social network for humans who seek justice for other animals. You can find us on the web at www.arzone.net. I'm your host, Carolyn Bailey. In today's episode, Tim Guy and I are pleased to welcome to AR Zone sociologists Matthew Cole and Kate Stewart. Matthew is a sociologist teaching with the Open University. He has research interests in how the human use of other animals is made to appear normal and acceptable and in how vegans and veganism are represented and often misrepresented, for instance, in the media. Kate is a medical sociologist working at the University of Nottingham. For the past decade, she's had a particular research interest in how information about food is interpreted and applied. This work led to her first collaborative work with Matthew, The Conceptual Separation of Food and Animals in Childhood, published in Food, Culture and Society in 2009. Their first book together, Our Children and Other Animals, The Cultural Construction of Human-Animal Interaction in Childhood, will be published by Ashgate early next year. Kate and Matthew, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to welcome you to AR Zone. Hi. Uh, thank you for having us. It's a pleasure for us to be here too. You're very welcome. Kate and Matthew, our first question today comes from AR Zone admin Spencer Lowe. He says, in your very interesting paper, you address the question of how, through normal social practices, children are socialised to learn the difference between animals they eat and animals they love. Focusing on children's literature and films relating to animals and promotional food tie-in products for children. Can you please elaborate on the thesis of your paper and its broader significance in understanding the food socialisation process in children? At the heart of uh, that paper, um, and a lot of the work that we've done subsequently to that, is this, this sort of conceptual model that, that's in there, um, which, was, which was very much um, uh, Matthew's inspiration when we first started looking at this issue of uh, children's stories and food tie-ins um, uh, that uh, as, as we began to work through that 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 was the spark of the idea particularly the idea of, of the happy meal and similar things and then it was this, this conceptual model um, uh, was very we very much built the paper around that so maybe it would be more appropriate for Matthew to talk about that because, <laughs> Well, it, I mean, in terms of the model that Kate's referring to, for anyone who hasn't seen the paper, um, we've got a, a, a diagram that we created to try and visualise um, the way that other animals are categorised by human beings. Um, so we were aware of previous sociological work that had been done on how other animals are categorised, um, and we wanted to have something we could use as a tool for analysing those forms of categorisation um, and something that we could use to communicate these ideas in a really, what's the word, uh, in as simple a way as possible, I suppose. You could put up like a PowerPoint slide and say, okay, on this diagram, we hope, or we're trying to capture the way in which humans categorise other animals in, in every kind of different way that we as vegans um, you know, have a problem with and, and oppose because we think they're exploitative. Um, so as Kate said, that, that model kind of came first in a way and then the particular example of children's uh, films came out of the 
a film club we were involved in at the time, at Cardiff University. And Kate just had an inspiration after watching Charlotte's Web. Web, yeah. yeah. And about how that might work with our model. Um, and the paper kind of flowed from that. So we've had lots of ideas for other ways we might apply the model or other um, types of media, other types of culture that, that we might analyse with it. So I think, I think what, hopefully what we managed to do with that paper is, is look at both a, a, a relatively um, particular area, a relatively small area in terms of children's films and, and stories and, and food tie-ins, but also do so in a way that you can broaden out the kinds of things that we're saying, the kinds of processes that we're talking about. Uh, what it starts starts to unpick, and of course, once, once you start to get into this area, it, it's endless. Um, as we're as we're wrestling with uh, much more now with the with the book, um, uh, that once but once you you um, uh, start to look at uh, uh, all of these uh, all of these kinds of processes, you you uh, you see how you start to see how ubiquitous they are, um, and how these stories and patterns come up. Uh, in all sorts of areas. I suppose what we've managed to do with that first um, paper is look at them, like I say, in a, in a very particular uh, area uh, and start to see how uh, these stories um, about about other animals um, uh, relate to uh, uh, how we use other animals in, um, in everyday life. Um, and that those processes go on beyond those kinds of stories that we're looking at as well, so that you can start to see them in um, advertising, I suppose, would be the obvious example, which we do talk a little bit about in the paper as well, but also in all of the ways in which food information uh, is communicated. Um, and as you said in your introduction, I've had an interest in how people interpret and understand messages about food um, uh, for about a decade now, and, and people, you know, do on the whole make sense of of what they're thinking about food, even if their practices seem nonsensical uh, and seem not to be the best thing to do. There is a there is a logic behind them, although sometimes logic seems like a bit of a generous description of what's going on. There is there is a process. So um, so I think uh, where it can go further, the, the sorts of things we started to talk about in that paper is that it's starting to engage with what that logic is um, and that how all of those different interpretations of, of what different animals are, what different animals are for, uh, um, uh, sort of wheels out uh, from some of the processes that we were able to engage with in that paper. I think another thing that, that struck us uh, when we began working on the paper, we had a few particular examples in mind, like the film The Lion King, we might about in there and uh, the, uh, the film uh, Babe as well uh, and they seem to really kind of fit with the way our thinking was going um, but since then as we've continued working in this area and leading up to the book it seems that everywhere we look um, things fit in with the model we've got in the paper and we're really struggling to find anything that, that goes against our argument um, and obviously we're kind of you know, tempted to find stuff that fits but you know, we have tried to, to find counter cases um, that go against it, and they're very few and far between. So what I mean is, if we look at things like uh, children's toys, children's games, 
children's books, um, you know, any kind of cultural artifact you can think of, we seem to be finding a similar process going on of different uh, of animals being categorised in particular ways and those categories being separated out from each other um, so that children are able, if you like, to, to successfully enter into an adult world that exploits other animals, um, you know, relentlessly. And for that to seem completely normal and acceptable. Um, so that's what we're trying to do with this model and with this paper is work towards understanding sociologically, understanding how, how can that happen. Because for us, if you like, we're on the other side as vegans. So we're looking at the world very differently. Um, and it makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. And I think many vegans articulate this all the time. Right. So we're trying to step back over the other side, if you like, to a pre-vegan state and, and try and reconstruct how is it possible that that ever makes sense. I, th I mean, I suppose that's, you know, as sociologists, that's what you're always trying to do in what you're looking at is, is to be the stranger. And, and in a way, the fact that, that we're both vegans makes that task in terms of studying this particular area, e easier. It, 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 we are the stranger uh, in terms of looking at these things. Um, so it does make that, it does facilitate that analytical uh, process in terms of looking at these phenomena sociologically. If I can just follow up on that, I'd like to read and then ask you a question about an excerpt from a review of your paper that appears on the website freefromharm.org. Here's what they write. and. Um, I hope you'll bear with me, it's quite long. As the paper points out, when we explain to children for the first time where meat comes from, their first reaction is often revulsion. Parents confront this moral quandary by explaining to children why farm animals have a different role in our lives than other animals. These family traditions, along with current pop culture and food advertising influences, contribute to a food socialisation process whereby children learn to conceptually distance the animals they eat from those with whom they have an emotional bond or for who they feel ethically responsible. Or in other words, children learn what animals, to, what animals to love and which to eat according to accepted social norms. But this rigid moral framework doesn't make sense to all children. One Free From Harm member recently wrote to us describing a terrifying childhood experience. When I was very young, a pet pig who adopted me was taken to the slaughterhouse. It was humanely treated, but it was stunned decapitated and hung by its legs and hacked apart lengthways. This pig was my best friend. It was entrusted to me and I felt I had betrayed him. I was too young to realise that my parents would not do the same to me or my brother. So distrust, fears and nightmares were a regular occurrence for me. My question is, are we causing damage to young children when we socialise them as so-called meat eaters? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one of the um, one of the things that, that's been preoccupying us with this work is is the damage that is done to children as well, um, because it makes children complicit in in the, the massive violence that's dealt to other animals. Um, so you know, children are kind of conned into. Uh, consuming animal products and you know visiting zoos and circuses and all these kinds of things um, and they're not you know it's not explained to them how these animals came to be in these situations it's not explained to them um, 
the realities of what they go through. And it's, you know, presented as fun and entertainment or you know, tasty food or whatever. Um, so this is this is an absolute moral outrage, we think, what what is done to children. Um, often in order to make adults feel more comfortable about what they themselves have been socialised into before. Uh, um, so, yes, again, <laughs> to answer that question, yeah. I agree. Um, I have a child, and I mean, he's older. He's older now, but um, I find it really concerning. I find it quite troubling to understand and 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 think, you know, sort of step back and and, and think about what as adults and as caregivers, what what we're doing to young children. Yeah. I think it's interesting that you mentioned that you have a child. One of the one of the interesting reactions, responses, I think that we had to that paper and some of the work that we've done since is that I have two grown-up sons, both vegans also, but who um, felt almost quite kind of betrayed by this, you know, pulling back of the curtain that this paper does about about some of these stories from their childhood that they held very dear and it was it was it sort of really demonstrated to me how powerful I mean we talk about how powerful these children's stories are how, how they can continue to move us still and we still feel attachment to them um, uh, as adults and uh, you know when we when we say the critical things that we say about the Lion King for example in that paper um, that you know, despite the fact that they know these things, despite the fact that they're both both vegans, they still felt as if a little bit of their childhood had been attacked. That this process of of uh, wrapping children in a, in these stories and of, of attaching ourselves so much emotionally to these these fictional characters, uh, it, you know, it really demonstrated to me how how strong that can be, um, and what a what a really powerful game it is uh, that's afoot with, with these processes. Absolutely, because young children do attach themselves emotionally to these characters. And yeah, definitely. That's that's what I find makes it such a serious situation. Yeah, yeah, and that was absolutely. I think you know, at the very beginning, the sort of the spark of the idea for that paper was that that really strong attachment that children form to those characters, yet can seemingly so easily sort of go and watch a movie and, and attach themselves and, and, and be emotionally attached and involved to these characters that they're watching and then, you know, skip across, across the car park and, and have a happy meal and a, and a piece of dead animal and not, you know, and, and the toy that they attach their emotions to and not really make that horrified connection. Um, and that was really sort of uh, uh, what first crystallised, uh, what first sparked our thoughts about what led to this. Uh, as to how powerful these processes must be that allow that to happen to children so so young to not make that connection. Do you think that the processes that you're talking about that socialize children in the ways that they do, are, are you saying that these processes reflect the way that society is and and that children will inevitably follow the dominant cultural norms of the society they live in? Or are you saying that children are being caused to be different than they otherwise would be? Do you see what I'm asking? 
is there are you saying that there's a causal role that's being played by these by these representations that are making children become something that they wouldn't otherwise be i think uh there's a kind of short answer yes in the sense that every aspect of culture that we're exposed to has some kind of role in shaping who we become but um, all those aspects of culture can be contested and often are contested. So what we're writing about in that paper, uh, we use the phrase ideal type, which is a sociological term, um, to talk about a kind of an idealized model of a, of a, of a situation. Um, so this is what, this is the way things are, from our point of view as vegans, this is the worst of all possible worlds, if you like. But from the point of view of a species as culture, it's the best of all possible worlds because it's a system that works and that socializes children into accepting the way things are. So that model then gives us uh, something against which we can compare what actually happens in, in the real world, if you like. So for particular children, I think it's always an uneven process. And there are points of uh, where that process is contested. Like, you know, if children do make uh, a connection between violence and food and you get you know disagreements at meal times perhaps and this kind of thing um, and then things can go in a different direction depending on the kind of response that caregivers provide or depending on the kinds of other um, forms of culture that children have access to more critical forms perhaps activist um, uh, interventions or you know pro-vegan stories, uh, literature, film, of course all these things are harder to get hold of than the mainstream things like The Lion King and so on. But, um, so it's not, we're not arguing that this is a, a closed system. Um, what we're trying to argue is that it's, it's really quite unstable in a way. It's quite precarious. So the model, the, the visual diagram in the paper, it's supposed to look a bit shaky. No, that's kind of a purposeful part. I think we managed that. Yeah, <laughs> that's a purposeful aspect of its design is, is to is to depict a very complex system in which animals are categorised in these different places, and there's always this risk that the categories break down and that people become aware that they're held apart um, through an immense cultural effort. Um, the whole thing about you know having a plastic toy in a Happy Meal box and, and making the toy look different enough from the dead animal whose body is also in the box so that the child doesn't make a connection. All these kind of things are, take an immense amount of effort. And I'm not saying it takes conscious effort because this is, if you like, a reproduction of the way um, the people will socialise who create those cultural forms, who make films, make toys and, and all the rest of it. So... Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an idealised picture of something that we're saying is actually quite unstable, can be contested, and part of what we're trying to do is contest it in writing this paper. We're trying to say, you know, this is sociologically interesting, so sociologists ought to be pursuing this as something peculiar in our culture. So we're trying to, you know, raise awareness, in a sense, among um, our peers who may not be vegans or not yet vegans. 
get them to realise that this is something pretty significant in terms of the way we bring up children. And one of the things that we're able to that we're able to explore more fully in, in the book that we're working on at the moment um, is is that connecting with um, childhood studies, literature on childhood studies, and and of course you know what the agency of children themselves that we do, we can't just treat uh, and think of children as being passive recipients of all of these um, socialisation processes. Uh, that, that of course it doesn't just um, universally occur to children, all of these kinds of processes, dominant processes that we've described, they aren't uh, inevitable um, and children have, have agency and they can negotiate and contest these as well. So it doesn't always or inevitably result um, in these outcomes and um, I think I think um, I think if anything that the the approach or the the feeling that we that we both have particularly moving forward with this book is one of uh, optimism in terms of of being able to say well well it is possible to change this because we do know that children do contest sometimes these messages that they're being subjected to uh, that, that they're that they're, um, uh, that they're exposed to and that, that that can change things, and that, that in a way that is, in, in some ways, the greatest threat to all of to the situations that we're, we're discussing, to the position um, of uh, non-human animals, because they have this uh, ability to challenge these messages that they're, they're being given. So there isn't that inevitability about it. I, I think it's quite interesting to think about how as Matthew said, that these socialization processes have been at work on all of us for a long time, generations and generations. Oh. Of course, it's you know the modern marketing and advertising that began in the late 1800s, I guess, and really kicked in um, around the time of the, I guess, the 20s or so, have really changed how this how these messages get disseminated. But it's it's not as though because I think it's possible that a person who gives your paper a quick glance or or maybe hears of the ideas might get the idea that that culture is something that in you know in and of itself that causes people to do things where obviously what you're saying is more nuanced than that we are the culture we're created by it but we recreate it and yeah. we have the ability to contest it so uh, it it's interesting that it's it's not like a nefarious plot by by you know people to perpetuate some evil system for some you know uh, gain of their own. It's Absolutely. just this is the world we're thrown into, and we you know we we take it as it is, and we and we and we go with it. So it is up to people to become subversive, I guess, if there's a if there's going to be a challenge to that. So. Um, and tying into that, I want to ask, and this is something that we've talked about. I, I, I'm sure you're familiar with um, Melanie Joy and her work with the idea of carnism. I hope you are. And she talks about invisibility, and you talk about invisibility. I think you're talking about it in a slightly different way that she is. She's talking about the carnistic system as an ideology is invisible. But you're talking about animals as individuals that are invisible to us. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm going to let Matty's looking at me but I'm going to let him talk about this actually because he's I think 
got a much better explanation of where, particularly where the thinking is developing on this issue. Okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, the, the, the short answer is yes to your question. We are talking about the, the visibility of other animals as such um, in, in two senses, really, in, in, in terms of a literal sense, the sense that, you know, slaughterhouses are difficult to access, uh, factory farms are difficult to access, vivisection laboratories and so on. Uh, but also culturally, because representations of animals in these situations are also uh, much more difficult to find than um, the representations that justify the system, that, that distract attention from it by you know, presenting images of idyllic uh, farms and so forth. Um, and of course, from, from our point of view as, as vegans and people involved in, in this kind of work, that it seems obvious that the, that the subversive images, if you like, are easily accessible. They're easily accessible to us because that's the world, that's the culture we inhabit. But I think um, sometimes we can forget how strange our world is from a mainstream perspective and how a lot of the more subversive images are not accessible. Um, but having said that about visibility, as Kate said, our, our thinking is developing a bit. And uh, when we first came up with the model, visibility was ju it's just a metaphor that sprang to mind. But we're getting more and more interested in, in what we're calling sensibility at the moment, i.e. Um, the ability to attend to other animals in any way, not just you know, through seeing them in their situations. Um, and that ability to attend to other animals is not just about the, the literal sense of how accessible their, their um, circumstances are to us, but also the extent to which we're, again, socialized into being willing to attend to um, what other animals are telling us, to, you know, to listen to their cries or to see, them, to see their struggles to break free or any of these kinds of things. So yeah, that's the that's what we meant by visibility, and that's kind of where it's developing. So it's not that it's impossible to. Again, this this is an ideal type, if you like. It's not that it's impossible to attend to other animals and, and what they're going through, but um, our culture makes it uh, difficult to do that. It makes it very very easy, and in fact very very pleasurable to do the opposite, to ignore it and to consume the products and the representations. Is that an answer to your question? Yes, thank you. If you wouldn't mind, could you speak a little bit more about um, typographies and categorization? I know you've mentioned ideal types, but you talk about the typographies and categorization of other animals. Um, I, don't, I don't have the paper in front of me, but the there are working animals and entertainment. And again, I'm thinking about that figure one. There are work animals and there are entertainment animals and there was dead meat and there were vermin and so forth. Could you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. First of all, I think one of the, one of the things that we really wanted uh, to do um, in that paper and with that, that figure was to move away from having set categories and set groups um, uh, of, of other animals. Um, and to be able to come up with a way that allowed us to look at individual animals or groups of animals in different and particular circumstances. So 
rather than trying to come up with a, a better or more detailed uh, set of categories than, than others had done before. And there are some very useful pieces of work that have, have come up with different kinds of categories and groupings of, of animals. Rather than, than work on a refinement of that, we wanted a much more flexible way of, of allowing us to analyse the experience of individual animals or of groups of animals under particular specific sets of circumstances that I suppose reflected that this is all an ongoing process, that this isn't, uh, that these aren't set identities, if you like, that, uh, that are always and inevitably result in, in particular consequences, um, that, we, that we wanted to work on something that had much more of that flexibility. So where we do talk about groups of animals, and, and in that illustration that you're talking about, where we, we sort of name groups of animals, um, uh, we do so kind of as examples, but usually that is where you might find working animals that have, you know, this slightly um, higher level of, of uh, visibility, that have perhaps a slightly higher level um, of subjectivity, um, but that that's not universal and that that's not inevitable, but that sometimes that moves, sometimes particular animals or groups of animals in particular circumstances will, will be somewhere else and will not share the same experiences and outcomes as all animals that might fit in that kind of nominal group at, at other times. Um, so we're very much we're, we're trying to work away from having set categories. Yeah, that <coughs> goes back to something we were saying earlier about how all of this is contested and contestable as well. So we want to, in the diagram, give this sense that um, animals themselves can, and of course they do, break free of the categories they're put into. Um, and also humans can, we can uh, 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 break down these categories as well. And, it, and in terms of cultural representation, in terms of animal characters in films and, and so on, one of the things we wanted to do is show the journey of those characters through different categories um, and try to understand what was happening in that journey. So, for example, in the film Babe, um, you have a journey from uh, a, a farmed animal film um, towards the, the category of a working or worked animal but also co-mingling with a pet or companion animal and then that kind of hybrid becomes the representation becomes the, uh, the character babe in the end so yeah just to reiterate what Kate said we, we want to get this sense of uh, sense of fluidity a sense of instability, a sense that this whole thing is quite precarious and, um, and, and, and that's one way in which we hope to communicate some optimism. Um, you know, there are things that we can do, we can all do to contest these categories, to, to, to shake up the system and to, um, you know, upset the, the taken for granted nature of the system most of the time. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask. Um, I've actually got two questions I want to ask, and I'll ask the, f the first one because there's something else that I think has been mentioned a couple of times, and I'd like f to have you explain what you mean when you say that something is socially constructed. Okay, case just pointed <laughs> at me there. Uh, <laughs> well, um, I, I suppose we're we're working in in what is a 
guess, an established sociological tradition now, that the, the idea of social constructionism, um, which still relates to this sense of instability. It's the idea that um, the way that we categorize other animals is, is nothing to do with the other animals. It's something that we, as, as humans, construct through social processes. Um, so all of the categories relate to types of social process, whether it be uh, farming or you know, imprisoning to be euphemize it, or exterminating animals categorized as vermin, or vivisecting animals, or putting animals in uh, uh, zoos or circuses for entertainment, or you know, all these kinds of things. These are all human social processes. Um, so the particular animals who are involved have, uh, it's, you know, they have no choice in the matter, um, or very little choice. Of course, they do contest the ways they're treated, but they're usually overpowered. Um, so that's a kind of a short answer to that. I mean, <laughs> I could go on. <laughs> Well, the the uh, well, <laughs> the, the 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 interesting thing about the about the phrase to me is that is that when in you know when in normal everyday life we we talk about constructing something, people think of building something, and then when it's built, there it is, and there it remains. That's that's why you construct a home or you know whatever you build something so that you can have it, but in sociological terms, when you're talking about socially constructing something, it's not as though the building ever stops, right? It's an ongoing process, which is why you talk about the challenges and the, and the subversion and, and the, the contesting these things, because the social construction of meaning is something that's can or well is or can be an ongoing and evolutionary process, or even a revolutionary process, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the great joys of being a professional sociologist is work will never be done because, <laughs> because society <laughs> is always changing and and as you say that the, these processes are forever ongoing there is never an answer to be found you, like you know you, the house will never be built it, it will constantly be being um, built and rebuilt and redesigned and, and we as sociologists will constantly be there criticizing the bricklayers um, right. uh, so yeah it's it, absolutely an, an ongoing an ongoing process and the idea that there are ever any final answers is is, um, uh, is false it's, you know, it's a foolish notion to say and, hold it. and so there there's there's where the hope comes from yeah absolutely yeah Okay, I'm going to ask a question now that Spencer Lowe has written. He's um, asked this. He says that Carol Adams' concept of the absent referent plays a very useful role in thinking about how promotional tie-in products enable and encourage children to conceptually distance the other animals they consume without a second thought from those they love or feel ethically responsible for. Can you explain Carol Adams' concept as you understand it and how it relates to promotional fast food tie-ins? Uh, well, the the way we've used it in the paper is to um, focus on um, the sense that other animals are literally absent in that situation because um, 
what you have is you know a fragment of of, of a corpse of an animal or, or several animals uh, in a burger or something. So that the real living animals that um, those products came from are absent. From the perspective of the child consuming them, um, they're quite likely to have very little grasp of that connection. Um, and the reason the, the promotional tie-ins are so important, I think, is it's not just it's not just about uh, animal products being distanced from real animals by the fact that you know they're unrecognisable because they're you know, uh, transformed into uh, something like a burger, which is, uh, bears no obvious relation to any part of an animal. But the tie-in toys do an, an additional piece of sociological work, if you like, by um, allowing children or encouraging children to feel good about other animals, to feel, you know, warm and sentimental and affectionate and all these things, um, towards the toy towards the representation so it's kind of adding an extra layer of absence if that makes sense um, that's the way that we're using the concept in the paper if I can kind of follow up on that um, in the paper you touch on the film Chicken Run and the tie-in toys that were used by Burger King to sell pieces of chickens as part of their kids club meals given that Chicken Run was a film about chickens trying to escape from being killed and eaten. What can we learn or understand from the fact that Burger King were actually quite successful in their promotion of their Chicken Run toys? I, I know. Uh, it's flabbergasted. Yeah, that was quite an audacious one, uh, I thought and particularly because um and there's there's an extract i don't have it to hand at the moment there's an extract in the paper from the press release that came along with that particular promotion and they're making puns about exactly. about that connection um as well which to us really suggested how kind of confident people can be that, that these things sort of work and uh and are robust i think what was particularly interesting um uh about that tying was how very far removed from um uh, actual chickens, the representations of them were, both in the film. When you look at the film, they, they really don't recognisably look like any kind of chicken I've ever seen. Um, and also in the toy as well, um, which was, um, you had to collect together bits of, of plastic toys which fitted together and then eventually made an aeroplane. That kind of echoed the the plot of the uh, of the movie, which was that they were going to build an aeroplane and escape the chicken farm that they were on. Sorry for ruining the film. And really haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's what they were trying to do. Um, uh, so that kind of the, what Matthew was talking about, about uh, trying to the ways in which the toys don't evoke the animal that maybe bits of which are lying dead in the box, that the toys were very different according to different uh, different films and, and the animals they were they were representing, and in that one there was a real distance between you know what what a real chicken might look like um, and and what the toys and the representations in the film looked like. That the danger of the toys or the film evoking thoughts about the you know the pieces of chicken that might be in your nuggets 
um, you know, about making that connection to that actual uh, chicken were, were quite difficult to make with that toy. Whereas you look at other films like um, uh, 101 Dalmatians or Lion King, where the, the toys were a little bit more um, realistic, might be pushing it a little bit, but looked a little bit more accurate in terms of how, how they um, depicted the animals that they were supposed to be depicted. Uh, and it was interesting how across the films that we looked at, how the toy and what the toy represented and did seemed to to vary according to, to you know, how easily a connection might be made between the food that was in the box as well. Exactly, because the, the you also spoke about in the paper, the, the babe tie-in toys were yeah. completely removed from 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 being a pig or... Um, animals that are classically regarded as, as food animals. Yeah, they were just basically sort of little fluffy soft folds of things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With a couple of stitches on for eyes and, you know, yeah. featureless, didn't move, and all of those all of those sorts of things, yeah. Yeah. You also write in the paper about the different messages, the two films that you mostly speak about, The Lion King and Babe, send and why each film and its message is problematic in its own separate way. Could you please speak about the differences that you see between the two? And um, I'm particularly interested in your opinion of Babe being an Australian film and one that many advocates for other animals seem to use as a reference for the type of film that we should be allowing our children to watch? I think uh, I think it's um, um, compared to what else there might be that we might want <laughs> our children to watch, it, it could go top of the list. But, but, um, but yeah, as you say, I think it's um, uh, still problematic, particularly in terms of um, how Babe's salvation is assured. It isn't because Babe is a, a, a farmed pig. That's that's not the reason that that Babe escapes the um, uh, the trip to the slaughterhouse. It's this movement which then comes back to um, uh, to that figure one that that model that we've used in the paper. It's that movement to saying, well, no, actually, Babe's a working animal, and actually, Babe's more of a pet than a working animal as well. So therefore, and that's where the salvation comes from. Not just because Babe's a pig, but that, that's not what um, save, saves Babe's life, ultimately, in the film. So I think that's where it's problematic, um, certainly compared to, to many other films, and certainly compared to The Lion King, which is the other one that we talk about, talk about a lot in the paper. Um, uh, it's, it's got a lot more going for it, but that aspect of it is still very problematic. I agree with that and um, I actually wanted to ask you about that because you, again you write in the paper that while on the surface the story often seems to be about these outsiders being accepted for who they are, it's usually about them being accepted for who they're not um, and obviously Babe's a perfect example because he was, he, he was never accepted as a pig, he was accepted as a sheep pig um, who happens to benefit her I'm not sure whether babe's male or female. Um, yeah, I, I haven't worked that out. <laughs> Let's say babe's a she. She happens to benefit her human owners. And, you know, 
like that makes sense but um, what I wanted to ask you about is if you're aware of and if so do you have an opinion about um, animal advocacy organisations falling into the same trap with some of their advertising and outreach campaigns? Um, I, it's something that I sometimes see and feel uncomfortable about. I think it's a really difficult uh, I think it's a really difficult issue to get right. It's a really difficult balance to strike uh, successfully because in some ways you have to in some ways there's an argument to say that if you use these these dominant processes and you know which kinds of representations and which kinds of animals are going to attract attention and empathy and can then hook people with that and draw them in is that better than than you know trying to um, uh, trying to attract their sympathies with categories or representations of animals which which go against those uh, those sort of uh, socialized preferences for want of a better word and I think it can be a difficult balance to strike and I know personally sometimes I feel very uncomfortable with some of the representations that I see uh, in advocacy materials because I because they do seem to just be reproducing that you know there's there's keeping that a nice kitten and it, and I I I I personally find it uncomfortable sometimes, but I can also see why it might seem a productive approach. Yeah, uh, I agree with what they said, and uh, I think it's interesting um, when you have, especially young animals, used um, to create a, an appealing image to to you know pull at the heartstrings and so on, because this is exactly what we're socialised into. That's part of what we're writing about, that when um, children encounter these cultural forms, uh, they're usually encountering baby animals or representations of baby animals um, rather than adults. And feeling affection for other animals is something very much associated with childhood and something that, that we're encouraged to grow out of, which is something we also touch on in the paper a bit. Um, so when advocates use that kind of imagery they're tapping into something that we've all already experienced and I think that's why it's very tempting because on one level it works you know it, it does appeal to our our sentiments and our, and our empathy um, but the risk about it is that it keeps us trapped within figure one if you like we're still in that system with uh, humans at the top in the privileged position determining that or socially constructing meaning of other animals and what we prefer is that other animals can kind of uh, leave this system you know not not be representable in figure one if you like be somewhere else and yeah. that's that's very difficult to do but that's what we think we should be aiming for I can understand the temptation to depict say a pig as a flying talking virtually human um, entity when we're trying to um, teach people about some of the problems in regard to factory farming or something like that. I, you know, I, I can understand the temptation to do that because it, it, it does draw attention to the issue. But as you say, you know, we're we're perpetuating what we really should be working against. Mm. 
It's time now for what we call in AR Zone the Ronnie question. Ronnie Lee is one of our admins. You may be familiar with Ronnie Lee. He was one of the original founding members of the Animal Liberation Front back in the 70s. And he works tirelessly for vegan education now. And he likes us to ask all of our guests, why did you become vegan and when? And what is it that causes you to invest so much time in working on behalf of other animals? I'll go first tonight. Um, <laughs> Um, so why I became vegan and when, um, I've been vegan now for six years um, and it was probably actually a lot to do with the work that I've been doing on um, uh, food and people's understandings about food and that kind of parallel personal um, uh, quest to be as, 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 as good in inverted commas as, as possible and to at least be a, a kind of thinking uh, consumer from all kinds of uh, all kinds of dimensions. So I suppose it was an engagement with with that uh, in the first instance, and a growing discomfort with the fact uh, that I wasn't that I wasn't a vegan. Although of course I didn't think of it in those terms in those days. Um, and um, so a combination of that, and I then inevitably that was the time I, I first met Matthew. So seeing just familiar familiarity I suppose that you, you start to um, um, hang out with a vegan or two and cook them some dinner and have some nice food cooked for you and <laughs> start to see that this is actually a fairly straightforward decision to make and an easy decision to make so that coupled with I guess the kinds of things that I was um, that I was uh, reading and learning about couched in an ongoing an ongoing journey it was, uh, I would say um, and why and why do I spend so much time doing doing this stuff? Um, uh, I suppose because it's because it's interesting. I mean, that my career as a sociologist has always been pursuing a, kind of where the story takes me, and kind of where the interesting stuff is. Um, that, that there's no greater strategy really um, in my uh, in my academic interest, um, and I suppose that. that that's why the academic work takes up uh, um, the time that it does my career, um, and I don't think I, I, I don't see that there's a, a distinction, a separation between um, uh, living that and studying that. They, they seem to go hand in hand. I wouldn't see them as two separate things. So it's inevitable, really, in a way that the two have come together. Matthew, how about you? <laughs> Well, thanks, Kate. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the, the the second part of the question, I, I guess, is quite similar to me as well. I mean, I've, I've been vegan eight years, which doesn't feel nearly long enough, but there we are. Um, and when I went vegan, I, I think I, I talked myself into it. I was having a conversation with a friend who was interested in veganism, and it's something I've been thinking about. And uh, by the end of the conversation, I talked myself into it, and I thought, why... What am I doing not getting on with being vegan? So I went vegan the next day. Um, and that was eight years ago. And at the time, I was just finishing my PhD, I think. Or, yeah, coming up to finishing my PhD. And uh, uh, wondering what I might do next. And going vegan gave me the answer, really. I thought, well, I've got some ability as a sociologist. So, you know, I've been working all these years developing these skills. Um, I think I should use them for, for veganism. 
really, to promote veganism, to uh, try to contribute to ending the exploitation of animals. So once I started on that route, um, well, the first paper I ever gave, actually, was where I met Kate, funnily enough, at a conference. And reader, I collaborate. And... Once I started doing that, I thought, well, there's, there's nothing more important than this that I could be doing as a sociologist, in my opinion. Uh, so it's all I do. So I, in a way, I, I, gave up, I gave up the idea of a career <laughs> because it's pretty difficult to, to get a job in sociology in the United Kingdom um, working on this kind of topic so far. But, you know, that's starting to change. Hopefully things will get a lot better. But um, it's, yeah, I mean, I do teaching to, to, to have a job and then all the rest of my time is, is spent on this stuff. Um, but I, there's nothing else I'd, I'd rather be doing. There's nothing more important, I don't think. Thank you for sharing that with us. I'd like to ask you a question about literature kind of in general. Um, seven of the top ten all-time best-selling books in the United States are about animals other than humans. Given this sort of popularity, it seems that most people think of themselves as caring and compassionate toward other animals. At the same time, though, we're commodifying and exploiting other animals at an ever-increasing rate. How do the themes in literature and in film contribute to this apparent contradiction? Gosh, that's a big question. <laughs> um, I suppose. Oh gosh, I suppose this this separation that occurs that that we that we're talking about that we that we we're studying and are, and are writing about um, uh, uh, facilitates that facilitates this this two track multiple track route for for um, for other animals that. Um, that 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 we can continue to think of ourselves as um, as caring for other animals and continue to consume them either directly as as products or foods or as, as representations, which in turn then feed back um, on all of these different ways of, of colonising and using um, uh, other animals' existence. That that. Um, uh, um, yeah, I don't, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> Got anything to add? <laughs> uh, not really. <laughs> do, do you anticipate or see a way that any of this is likely to change in the near future? And if you do, what do you see? Like how, what can we do to, to sort of make changes? Um, I think there is so so many things um uh, i think that there is always there is always hope from the fact that um we don't all come out the other end of these processes having bought into this ideology um that we can take ourselves and each other as inspiration that 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 more people can make these same connections that we're not passive uh actors in all of these processes, um, uh, but that there will be a million different answers because there are a million different ways or more in which 
these processes articulate um, uh, and and I suppose each each requires their own particular approach and strategy and circumstances under which change um, will occur that sometimes you get these uh, and again example you know the example a couple of examples we talk about in in the book um, you know that the change that that the book black beauty brought about which was a kind of fairly enduring welfare change the the rather more short-lived change that's reported to have occurred as a response to to babe and children refusing to eat um, bits of pig for a while which was, was reported to occur but that you know these these different circumstances arise uh, in different ways and at different times and and present different opportunities to chip away um, at these I suppose grander uh, sets of processes that maybe we're, we're describing more in our work yeah I think the what, what our ambition is I suppose is that we can find ways to um, undermine this system so consistently and persistently that it it's unsustainable and that it all starts to tumble down and that people no longer um, will no longer be content to to not ask questions and to accept uh, the representations that they're given to 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 distract them um, and in terms of how we get there I think you know everybody as Kate said can can chip away at this system no matter what different skills we have um, I mean our skills are as sociologists but uh, one thing we're interested in for instance is is can we work with artists in some way to bring this model this figure one to life is there some way of representing it in a way that people can experience it not as an intellectual exercise but as some kind of more immediate experience that that um, cause this system into question and that every element of it I think can be uh, attacked for want of a better word in you know in everyday life in well I'm, I'm bewildering myself with, a, with, a, <laughs> with the possibilities I mean it, it, it's all you know it's all up for grabs it's it is contestable it's contestable through the types of culture that we socialize our children with you know we can create different stories for children uh, different you know cartoons films music anything anything and everything can contribute um, and of course the opposition is, is is massive and powerful and rich uh, but also wrong um, and that fact gives us hope always I think thanks for that um We've spoken quite a bit about Figure 1 from the paper today. Figure 1 we'll make available on the AR Zone website when we publish the podcast. So um, it's really helpful to have a look and see what Figure 1 looks like. Um, for our final question today, I'd like to ask you about your soon-to-be-published book that you've mentioned a few times today called Our Children and Other Animals. Would you please tell us about its main themes, um, who its target audience is going to be, and what you hope to achieve in writing it? Well, the the main theme of the book is it's continuing what's in the paper. It's it's about childhood socialisation, um, and we're looking to 
extend it beyond um, the examples in the paper, so beyond the mass media. So we're going to, we're still looking at mass media uh, in the book, and we'll probably still mention some of the examples from the paper, but we also want to look at other areas like social media and uh, online gaming and those kinds of things. Um, we want to look at the education process more directly, um, the ways that children are uh, formally taught about the way we relate to other animals, but also the kinds of experiences they might get in schools, um, like uh, when you get hatcheries brought in, or, or if children get taken on school visits to petting zoos, or these kinds of things. Uh, we also want to look at the role of uh, things like toys in socialization that goes on in the family at home. Um, uh, and what else? Oh, yeah, and, we, um, and we've got a, a kind of historical element here. So we want to bring out a bit more of the story of how we got to where we are now. So how this, this system, figure one, if you like, how it uh, got into the shape it's in now. So we're going back looking at some 19th century uh, stuff. So, I mean, a lot of the classics of children's um, culture emerged in the 19th century. In uh, Kate's mentioned Black Beauty a few times, and uh, the uh, Alice novels, Alice in Wonderland. And, um, what else? Well, the, and then Beatrix Potter stuff, Beatrix kind Potter, of early yeah. 20th century stuff as well. What we're also hoping to do uh, in the book as well is, is connect all of this um, to childhood studies to try and connect this to, to some more perhaps mainstream sociological work um, as well because it, interestingly um, of course interestingly um, uh, other animals are, are really fairly absent from uh, childhood study as a discipline there's not terribly much attention given uh, to other animals uh, there are some notable um, there are some notable exceptions. But other than a kind of basic recognition that um, other animals are important in childhood, that analysis really doesn't seem to go terribly much further in childhood studies. So we're hoping also to connect to that literature um, and, and catch those, those, um, those areas that Matthew was just talking about in terms of where they sit with, with childhood studies as well to try and get childhood study scholars perhaps interested in this area, that the role that other animals have in children's lives, but more importantly to us, of course, the role that children uh, have in the lives of other animals, because, of course, the implications of all of these uses of other animals in childhood are, are massive for other animals, um, that it's, it's sort of literally a, a life and death um, uh, issue for other animals. We also... Um we'll be ending the book on an optimistic note as, as far as we can and looking at uh, hopefully some more positive alternatives in terms of children's culture that, that does but um, the system. Uh, and in terms of who it's aimed at, uh, it's undergraduate students, I suppose. It's, it's the, you know, for, formally that's the target market, so it'd be uh, university libraries and so on. But we are trying to... Um, you know, make it not, not full of jargon and um, accessible to general readers as far as we're able to. Uh, and another thing that we're trying to achieve here is to open up um, 
these areas of study. So, I mean, we're covering an awful lot in what will be a fairly standard-length book, I suppose. It's not going to be an epic. Um, so we're trying to open up these different areas, family education, mass media, social media, um, and stimulate other people to, to pursue this line of research as well, other sociologists or in other disciplines. Um, so we're trying to do a few different things at once, I suppose. It sounds really interesting. Do you have any news on when we should expect to see it available? Well, <laughs> <laughs> probably late. I, w I would say my best guess is, is late spring, early summer next year is when, I, when I'm hoping we're going to see it. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's uh, what we're working to. It's uh, first half of 2014 sometime. Excellent. Kate and Matthew, I'd like to thank you both so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you both. Before we say goodbye though, is there anything that you'd like to mention that we've not thought to ask you about? I don't think so. We've covered an awful lot, I think. It's been really, really interesting. I think we've uh, <laughs> been as comprehensive as we can be about about the paper, but it's it's been a real pleasure to, to have the chance to speak about it in this way. And it's great that taking an interest. It's uh, very flattering. Look, absolutely. I think it's a wonderful paper. Thank you again, both of you, for joining us in AR Zone today, and thank you for all of the work that you continue to do on behalf of others. Thank you very much. Thank you too. Thank you for listening to AR Zone. Please visit us online at www.arzone.net and look for us on iTunes.